Welcome to WOMA's podcast. This is the podcast for anyone who wants to stay current on topics of interest in occupational and environmental medicine. WOMA is the Western Occupational and Environmental Medicine Association and a component of ACOM. We have designed these WOMA podcasts to be a tool and a benefit for WOMA members, as well as anyone interested in learning more about worker and environmental health. I am your host today, Dr. Alia Khan, and we are delighted to have you join us. The WOMA Education Committee members involved in planning this session and today's speaker have no relevant financial relationships to disclose. Today's episode is COVID-19 vaccine, what we need to know part two. We are in the midst of the vaccine rollout and just a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to discuss the rollout with Dr. Wendy Tanasi in part one of this podcast episode. Though only a few weeks have passed, a lot has happened since then and many healthcare workers and others in the first tier have already received their second dose and there are as expected many more questions to get through. Dr. Tanasi is board certified in emergency medicine with training from Yale and Stanford. She is currently the chief of occupational health for the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System and affiliated associate professor at Stanford. She served on the VHA National Occupational Health Advisory Board for five years and is a lead consultant for tuberculosis and infectious disease management for the VA's 400,000 employees. She speaks extensively at national and international conferences has published literature and been the principal investigator for FDA trials on TB diagnostics. Welcome back, Dr. Tanasi. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be back and appreciate the invitation. So you recently spoke at the ACOM symposium about your experiencing setting up the vaccine clinic. And before this podcast, you and I had a chance to discuss the setup and challenges with this operation. I found it very interesting and I'd like you to tell us about it. I know that some physicians are in your shoes or will be in your shoes, whether it be in a massive vaccine rollout at a healthcare system or a point of distribution site, or even within private practice clinics in the future. There's the issue of the fragility of the Pfizer vaccine, its requirement for ultra cold storage, observing people afterwards, what to do with extra doses, et cetera. So can you tell us about your experiences? Oh, well, sure. That's a a pretty big question, but I'm happy to participate. You know, so far in our institution, uh, we have given about 6,800 vaccine to healthcare workers. That's first and second doses, approximately nearly 4,000 on the first dose end. So we've rolled healthily into the second doses. Uh, I've, I've learned so much. I think One of the bigger surprises to me so far has been how important the booking and scheduling aspect of it is. You know, occupational health as a, as a, as a group is always understaffed, much like public health. We have not been the area that's had, you know, the most attention paid to us or the most finances rolled into us nationwide across all different services. So it's been difficult to have an organizational infrastructure 
that allows for mass clinic operations and distributions in such a short time frame. So what really worked importantly for us was having a decent scheduling program. We happened to choose to use the Microsoft Office Suite. There's a program called Microsoft Bookings that we happen to use, and I have no financial interest in Microsoft, but that's the program that we use. And what we did, the, the premise of it is that because occupational health is so understaffed, because public health is so understaffed, you have to disseminate every bit of work that you possibly can. So by sending out a Microsoft question in Power BI, and then having it return to a spreadsheet that you know, was automatically populated. Everyone who said yes was entered on, and yes, I want the vaccine was entered on a spreadsheet. Then we could just copy and paste all those yeses into an email and send them to the link to Microsoft Bookings. So boom, 400 bookings in a day without even you know, myself logging on was something that we've had happen, you know, relatively from the beginning. It's not that the program's simple to use. It's not that it didn't take a lot of work on our part, but compared to trying to make phone calls and book people in individually, it's been a lifesaver. And the really important reason that's a lifesaver is that there's a great deal of demand and interest, obviously, in the beginning. So it prevented any sort of like run on the system at 9 a.m. It also really maximized efficiency to book people in every essentially one minute is what we did. We booked nine people in every 10 minutes. So that gave us flow. So that starting in the morning and all the way through the day, we knew that we had a certain churn and flow and we didn't have our very important healthcare workers lining up in the hallway, six feet apart, you know, going all the way a half a mile down the road. <laughs> so very important to maximize efficiency by thinking ahead and having these kind of operations in place. Great, thanks. Yeah, that's such an important point um, that you make that it's probably overlooked in the whole process and scheme of things of setting up a vaccine clinic. There's been also a lot of discussion about side effects, right? Even from the beginning, we knew from the initial clinical trials about the most common side effects. And I know that many of us have gotten the vaccine can share what they went through. I think we can agree that the typical side effects like fever and muscle soreness, fatigue, etc. are good signs that our body is reacting to the vaccine. With that being said, there is a challenge of differentiating common vaccine side effects from actual COVID signs and symptoms. And how have you been managing and triaging this situation? I would say that's another surprising part of the vaccine clinics and maybe the part that we didn't anticipate as much. You know, so focused on making sure that we got the clinics up and running with all the right staffing. We happened to staff it with about 30 people per clinic day. So a lot of administrators, we have pharmacists, we have IT, which is in information technology or computers. We have police, we have injectors, documenters, nurses, we have house cleaners, we have the doctor. So we have a huge staff there and we did the bookings and we did the staffing and we did all the flow and the signage. But what I didn't really anticipate was when once they walk out the door, there was still a ton of work to be done. So in terms of side effects, I've found a lot of immediate side effects in the first dose clinics and very few in the second dose clinics. Look, that could be a little bit anecdotal, but you know, at several, at you know, three, four thousand people in on each, it's probably a relatively good uh, representation of a an occupational health clinic. So, first dose clinics, we probably have five or six people a day on a gurney. It doesn't mean that they're that sick, but there's probably a lot of anxiety. We notice hypertension. There's headaches. Um, there's vasovagal. 
And every now and then there's localized allergic reactions, numbness and tingling in the face or at the site of the injection, urticaria, pruritus, um, every now and then some lip or tongue swelling. So there'll be these immediate reactions that can either be anxiety, um, but are very important and are really important to have appropriately staffed with nursing and with medications, with a gurney, and uh, you know some privacy, and I would recommend always a, a, a good MD be there as well. And then there's the delayed hypersensitivities and the delayed reactions, as you mentioned. So a lot of people post either first or second, I don't know that I'm totally noticing a difference, but high fevers that I didn't expect, 1028, 103, um, after injection the, the following day, real flat out fatigue, people who say they can't get out of bed, um, and, and of really sturdy people, you know, surgeons who are standing on their feet all day are laid out flat the next day sometimes. Uh, obviously a headache. So a lot of people have exacerbation of their migraines and then generalized myalgias, generalized um, localized sore arms happen a lot. What I didn't understand was that day or two after people get vaccines, how many emails and phone calls and IM messages occupational health was going to get regarding the side effects. So we couldn't really manage it. We had to stand up two full-time staff just to enter into our computer program side effects and to work with HR on people who were missing work because there's um, leave allowances at the VA that are um, have to do with that, supervisors who are questioning whether people are really sick. And this all falls on occupational health in many cases, even though we shouldn't necessarily be doing leave administration, uh, people look to us for, for those answers. So recommending that you stand up in advance a couple of people to address side effects is important. And then I think what you're really getting at is some of the serious consequences that happen immediately. So there are reported incidences of anaphylaxis, as you well know. The anaphylaxis that occurred in our setting um, was not captured in the CDC's MMWR. We've had two very immediate, one right at the 15 minute mark, I think it was 16 minutes and one, you know, two to three minutes later. There's a lot of discussion now about who's at highest risk for that. There's a lot of discussion about uh, not giving the second vaccine to people who had serious side effects of the first vaccine. In our case, both of these incidences were on the first vaccine. So um, early recommendations were, and, and I'm actually still following those, not to give vaccine to people who have known anaphylaxis to IM or IV medications and uh, idiopathic anaphylaxis, which actually does exist. Being the physician in the room, being the health doc in charge, and being able to say no to people is your right. And it is your duty if you think that somebody would be potentially put at risk for this or a very consequential side effect. What I tell them is that there's a lot more vaccines on the way. We're going to get Johnson & Johnson. We might get the AstraZeneca. The Moderna might have different side effects than the Pfizer does. So when I ask people not to get their vaccine with us, I recommend that they just watch. In the next few weeks, new ones will be coming down or that they go speak with their specialists about whether or not this vaccine might be safe for them, whether they should get it in a different setting. Long answer to a short question. Yeah. So to clarify, when you said um, for those who have allergies to IM and IV medications, are you talking about specific medications, like with those are the ingredients of the Pfizer Moderna vaccine, or are you talking about in a more general sense? 
when the early recommendations came out, it was anaphylaxis to any IV or IM medications that included vaccines, but clearly there are ones that would be more concerning than others. So there's um, a chemotherapy drug called PEG asparaginase, which is mm -hmm. the ethylene glycol, glycol asparaginase. And that is the element of the vaccine that people seem to be allergic right. to polyethylene glycol. The PEG that's in the Pfizer vaccine has a different constitution than the one that's in the Moderna vaccine, which may be why we see a different um, differential allergy profile between the two. Um, but certainly when one person approached me with anaphylaxis to that medication, that was a clear contraindication, a little bit less so to some of the others. I do tend to look up on the computer right away whether the drug that they're allergic to has PEG in it. IV contrast, the iodine does have polyethylene glycol in it. So I've been able to um, sort of do that on the fly and see if I think there's going to be a cross reaction. But generally, I don't see a reason to put somebody at risk when we're really talking about a difference of a few weeks before the option for a different vaccine comes out. What are your thoughts about, you know, with vaccinations being provided through these point of distribution sites and, you know, with pharmacies and, and, and whatnot, and maybe not your traditional healthcare settings and the risk of anaphylaxis, you know, we may not have an MD in those sites. And there's a lot of questions from the population, you know, whether it be even besides allergies, people have questions, you know, I have heart disease, is it safe? Do they um, get these vaccines? I've, I've noticed that at least where I am in Orange County, point of distribution sites have opened up and, and uh, people are trying to figure out, well, can I get the vaccine? They're trying to call up their primary care doctor and their primary care doctor is not available right away. And they just want to get the vaccine. So it seems like there's still a lot of education that needs to be given to the community. I, I definitely see, you know, there be concerns in some of these types of places that don't necessarily have the same resources as a healthcare system providing the vaccine. Uh, perhaps we'll see something different with Johnson and Johnson coming out and or maybe AstraZeneca. Yeah, I, you know, look, this is a work in progress. We've never in over 100 years been in a situation where we really didn't know what the path forward looks like. We don't have an algorithm. Mm -hmm. New data, as we've discussed, is coming out every single day. There's a lot more information to be had. So I think we're all just doing our best. The published literature on the rate of anaphylaxis with the Pfizer vaccine is exceedingly low. Right now, they're publishing numbers that are you know, on the order of one and a half a million to a million doses. So I don't know what happened if we're exceedingly unlucky or because that publication was only through December 23rd for cases, if the next round will show more. Uh, so, you know, it's very hard. It's very hard to know. It isn't the side effect that I would focus on the most. So you bring up a really good question. Um, for my occupational health colleagues, one of the concerns I have is this post-vaccination fever of, you know, really high, high 102s, 103. So one of the recommendations you might make to your staff if they reveal to you that they have something like myasthenia gravis, where the consequence of that to them is in the case I saw was um, diaphragmatic impairment. After a first dose, the, the employee had 10 days of difficulty breathing, multiple you know, appointments with the physician and decrease in his uh, diaphragmatic function, his diaphragm function. So I didn't let him get the second dose, of course. And again, the one could switch then to a later medication. So the questions about myasthenia gravis, about multiple sclerosis, about Hashimoto's, about any, uh, even severe diabetes, any underlying illness that could be uh, 
badly affected by a high fever is something to warn the patients about, not necessarily to deny them the medication, but to say, you could, you know, if you get a fever of one or two or one or three, how is that going to affect your underlying illness? And if, if multiple sclerosis is going to take a step for the worse with a high fever, um, then I, then I wouldn't recommend that they get this vaccine at this time. So regarding the drive-through clinics and the point of care clinics, you know, everybody has to use their own risk reward system. It depends very much on volume. It depends whether you're very urban or very rural, your access to um, emergency care if you need it. So I don't feel like I'm in a position to criticize any clinics that have already undergone the, gone their own own internal review and that they've determined to be safe. I would just say when, when our staff and our colleagues are involved, these are some of the things that I'd recommend that they think about and that have worked for me and that I want to share with them. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. I think it's great to hear about your personal experiences um, in such a, a large healthcare system. And um, we can definitely learn from that if any of us are getting involved in, in vaccine distribution. Thank you again for coming back and sharing your experiences, Dr. Tanasi. What an exciting scientific frontier we have embarked on. Um, and for all of you listening, if you missed out on part one of Vaccines in December, make sure to check it out on our podcast channel. We want to thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would like to invite you to explore more of our episodes. You can find our library of podcasts on the Wilma website, www.woema.org and we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast channel at your favorite site for podcast listening. You'll be notified as new episodes become available. Topics could include the latest clinical update, emerging treatments in medicine, or topics in public and environmental health. Stay tuned and don't miss out. Until next time, be well.